the other thing that I think is really helpful at the moment is the pressure that's coming from uh, the financial sides of the market. So a lot of organisations are finding that uh, stakeholders, all sorts of stakeholders are now demanding uh, transparency and reporting and there's mandatory financial reporting TCFD those sorts of things so yeah. that's good those levers are coming from outside of people like us uh, and we obviously have to then respond to what the client uh, needs to do in order to make sure that they're compliant. Hello and welcome to Navigating ESG in Facilities in the Workplace my name is Darren Pardy, and I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Daly, who is an Associate Director for Turner & Townsend. Sarah, thank you very much for joining me. How are you today? I'm really good, thank you, Darren. Thank you for having me along. Thank you. Um, before we get into ESG, just five quick fire questions, please. Okay. Um, keep it a little bit lighthearted. Uh, what is your favourite film? Uh, I think my favourite all-time film is probably High Society. Um, but I'll be a little bit cheeky on this one because uh, it's not exactly a film, but I'm a bit obsessed with um, Hamilton at the moment. So the on-screen, the Netflix version of Hamilton. Right. Big okay. favourite. <laughs> Do what you want. Um, favourite song? Um, again, I've got so many, it's really difficult to think of one, but I think I'll go for a Teardrop by Massive Attack. Oh, very nice. Big fan. Uh, favourite band or artist? uh keen probably all-time favorite cool uh favorite place to go in the world can be anywhere even local um i think probably uh antibes in the south of france where i've got a little tiny little weenie pied de terre so i like to go there to escape very nice and uh are you one of those people that like to have pineapple on their pizza no, no. <laughs> you could uh, glad to hear it um so Sarah, how did you get involved in sustainability? Uh, like what's your background? Was it a passion from a young age? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, I've had an extremely eclectic career, I think is probably the best way to describe it. Um, funnily enough, I started off as um, a photographer. I started off as a freelance um, photojournalist and uh, was totally obsessed with with going down that route and, and actually did my first degree in photography but towards the end of that decided that um, I probably wasn't going to make much of a living out of uh, particularly what I was studying which was reportage photography uh, mm -hmm. and I think that was probably a good call at the time so I kind of gravitated really more towards um, marketing and visual communication it was actually a visual communication degree really but specializing in photography um, so actually a year after I graduated I set up my own consultancy in uh, marketing Right. Uh, quite an audacious thing to do at the age of uh, whatever I was, 22 or 23. Um, but uh, as you do at that age, you think you know it all. So <laughs> I kind yeah. of went ahead with, uh, with, with the confidence of not knowing what I didn't know. Um, it actually worked really well. Um, and I sort of ran that consultancy for uh, probably the best part of 20 years, really. Uh, mm -hmm. But during that time, worked with a whole range of clients, including quite a few in built environment. And I got increasingly interested in not only built environments, but I was introduced, luckily, to some projects uh, involving regeneration and, um, and particularly one project, which was the turning point for me, which was the Sherwood Energy Village. Uh, I was working yeah. on a, a, a major contract, ERB 
to funded project um, with local authorities and regional regeneration people. And um, at that point, then got introduced to my first net zero uh, development, really, and that was in the late 1990s. So pretty well ahead of its time at that mm. stage. Um, but I was absolutely convinced that everything we should do should be in that way. It just seemed completely counterintuitive not to build things in the most sustainable way. Um, and so really, I kind of changed direction from that point, really. So I began to focus really on built environment and sustainability from that point. Um, I divested my interest in my own marketing business and actually reinvented myself effectively as a sustainability consultant in the early 2000s. Um, I relocated from the East Midlands back to Gloucestershire, which was my home county, and um, was very lucky then at that stage to be able to get on board with some really interesting clients ranging from planning consultants and contractors um, and uh, architects. And that then led into another sort of uh, quite interesting move. I was um, consulting for, for a firm of architects and they then asked if I would be interested in becoming um, a non-exec director. So I did that for a couple of years and then the founder directors wanted to retire and I was helping them to recruit somebody to lead the practice because there wasn't a, an obvious uh, business person within their team. And uh we ended up somehow uh, with me getting the job as managing director. So, right. uh, yeah, it was it wasn't an intended sort of change uh, for me, but it was actually a really interesting point mm, in my career. Yeah. yeah. So I said I'd do that for a couple of years. It turned into three years. Um, it was probably not the best timing in that literally within a month of starting, we had the global financial crisis so yeah. um very rapidly moved from um an incredibly full order book uh into one where pretty much the whole market was flatlining mm. um but in a way that was good because not being an architect and coming from a marketing background i could look at how we could pivot the business what we needed to do to uh to to change and relate to what was likely to be coming down the road in terms of market changes um, so actually it worked out really well because I was able to reposition the business as a sustainability led practice um, and we managed to, well, we, we got involved with things like BIM very early um, in the market and were able to um, win contracts that were probably outside of our scale and scope as a fairly small regional business had we not gone down that route. Uh, so in the end, we were able to sort of uh, navigate that quite well. But after three years, I thought, well, I've done as much as I can do here. Um, and I wanted to go back into consulting and sort of work with a broader range of clients. So I did that, set up um, my own consultancy, had been doing a lot of uh, blogging and writing uh, under the name My Green Eye. So I then created that as the consultancy and uh, simultaneously um, wanted to consolidate my, um, I suppose, uh, market experience with a qualification. So I did an MSc in sustainable development uh, part-time, right. which was quite challenging as a single parent with uh, two young children and working full-time. But anyway, I got through that and, yeah. Um, yeah. and then had a really interesting role as European Head of Marketing for SLR Consulting, uh, which took me into all sorts of interesting areas across um, globally, 
coordinating and managing a lot of their marketing um, and business development. And uh, then after that, went back into consulting for myself very briefly and then uh, joined Sustainable Homes, which is a not-for-profit. Um, and in that role, I was able to get much more involved in the I suppose shaping of the market with uh, net zero and um, affordability and you know trying to look at ways in which the market could again pivot and change to the requirements of um, all of the benefits I suppose of, of more sustainable homes. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened next? Uh, I, unfortunately our team there was disbanded um, and we it, it was a, a sort of change of CEO and a change of corporate direction for our parent company. Uh, so I went back into um, consulting again uh, as an individual. Um, and then we kind of hit COVID times and things. Uh, and I actually ended up in France uh, for most of last year. Right. Uh, so I was uh, continuing to work with a number of clients from there. And also, uh, again, quite fortuitously, but I got invited by a couple of universities to uh, get involved in lecturing and and running courses. So I was doing that uh, mostly up to MBA level, actually, on uh, sustainability, Mm -hmm. leadership, CSR, uh, management and marketing, those sort of topic areas. So quite a broad spread, really. Mm. Um, So that was interesting. And then um, Tanner and Townsend knocked on my door and uh, scooped me up last summer. So uh, I returned from France. And since then, I've been working on a really exciting range of uh, consulting projects. Well, so, so quite, a, quite a journey. Yeah. Um, and so, so you mentioned earlier that you've been involved in kind of net zero projects since the late 90s. Mm. So you've had the late so, so obviously in 20 odd years now, and then you've had the the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, um, and then you've obviously uh, sustainability, net zero, uh, ESG, probably become quite a big thing in the last few years. Have you noticed the conversations that you've had over those sort of two decades, are, are they different now to what they were 10 years ago and what they were 20 years ago? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I would say really the turning point was probably in the last two to three years um, where, you know, I could I could talk to a wide range of people, even very senior people within uh, large organisations in the built environment and talk about sustainability. And they still wouldn't know what I meant. They wouldn't actually say, well, what do you mean by sustainability? And, you know, do you mean recycling or you know, do, do you mean, I mean, it was just a, a very, um, I, th- I think actually there were two or three turning points. I think uh, David Attenborough has had obviously a sort of broad impact on uh, the UK market in, in terms of people understanding, uh, you know, the climate crisis. You know, there yeah. are a lot of people who follow his programme, so that helped. Uh, Greta Thunberg then obviously came in and, was grabbing the headlines so the fact that that then started to happen whether people agreed with with her or not um mm-hmm. it started conversations and then of course we had cop 26 so the build up to that meant that uh, a lot of mainstream tv programs and news programs were starting to report much more actively on things to do with the climate crisis and meanwhile there were things happening in the background there were you know disasters floods 
um, droughts, obviously lots of wildfires, devastating yeah. various parts of the world. And I think people started to think, actually, there is something here. There is something going on that's, you know, mm. that, that we have to start paying attention to. And so th the narrative started to change and everything to do with ESG and sustainability generally, I think, moved from the nice to have, you know, tick a little box that we're, we're doing a few good things into yeah. actually this is, you know, mainstream um, existential stuff for organisations yeah. who were starting to look very differently at what they were doing and how they were doing it. Right, okay. Um, thank you. And uh, I noticed you did a TEDx talk. Uh, presumably that was around sustainability. Can, can you give a bit of background about what you discussed during the talk? Yeah, so the, yeah that was great, actually. It was um, it, it hugely exciting to be invited to do a TEDx, although I look mm. back at it now and absolutely cringe. But um, mm -hmm. it, was, um, it was interesting in that uh, around really from about 2008 onwards, when I'd been working with um, the architectural firm, one of the things that I noticed was that it was very difficult to get the market engaged in the good things they needed to do within buildings. So I started to look differently at it again, sort of this is having a marketing brain rather than a, uh, a technical built environment uh, brain, I suppose. But what was happening was that the architects were designing fabulous buildings that were very energy efficient and resource efficient. Um, but when, as soon as they got to the stage where uh, the um, uh, sort of stage two sort of contract side of things, uh, the contractors would get involved and they would uh, what's uh, euphemistically called value engineer the project, which basically means strip out all the good stuff uh, to bring the cost of the project down. Um, and there was no correlation between the capex, the capital expenditure on putting a building together and then the operating costs. And I felt that was something that was a huge weakness. And because... Right. It tended to be um, uh, sort of peers talking to each other. So you would get somebody from the client organisation or the project manager or whoever uh, representing the client would be dealing with the architects. But actually, very rarely were you having a conversation with the CEO or the FD of the organisation that might be occupying the building or um, ultimately would have responsibility for its operating costs. So I started working on a, a series of um, presentations which were talking about the non-carbon and energy benefits of better buildings. So really focusing on the, um, the people side as much as anything else. So saying actually how can we quantify um, the paybacks that are going to come through you having better buildings. And that means not getting rid of the uh, uh, the elements of the building that are going to make them perform better, be energy efficient, but also uh, be much better in terms of um, human performance. Um, so that involves things like air quality, access to natural light, um, you know, ventilation rates, all of those sorts of things. But I actually sort of created a a tool that would allow uh, us to work with organisations to actually identify where their buildings weren't performing well at the moment, and then to quantify what the cost, the actual cost to them of those poor performing buildings were. And I did that for um, clients in the NHS and uh, for commercial clients. And it ran into millions every time. It, you know, it staggered the clients mm. that they were so focused on 
the actual cost of the building they weren't thinking about how it was going to impact on them later so we were looking at things like staff retention rates and sickness absence rates and um, productivity um, and then quantifying that so it sounds a little bit abstract but actually it is quite easy to work it out and right. map um, any sort of building whether it's a, a warehouse or a hospital or a school or an mm -hmm. office building you can map the um correlation between uh the likelihood of people to sort of uh, stay with that company or leave that company according to the red amber and green areas of building performance um so that's really what my ted talk was about it was about um uh, you know really trying to sort of uh, explain to people the importance of actually looking at you know the whole point of buildings is there for people to be in them that that is yeah. their sole purpose they're not there for any other purpose other than you know people to occupy them yet the design side of it tends to think of that last not first yeah um, so i did lots of other presentations around that uh, for various institutes and organizations and major exhibitions and conferences um, the highlight being actually invited to speak at the World Green Building Congress in Singapore in 2010. So that was back in the days when I was allowing myself to fly. But it was, uh, you know, it was a really, you know, interesting thing that actually, I mean, it still hasn't really taken off as a concept, which is slightly mm. frustrating, but there is an awful lot of work that we need to do in that space. Yeah. Okay. And when you're advising to clients, um from a sustainability point of view and, and you're putting together presumably some sort of sustainable plan mm -hmm. um what what's the first few things that you look at in terms of uh i don't know how, how they can reduce carbon or what they can do in a more sustainable way are, are there a few sort of trends or patterns when you're working with clients that always kind of stick out yeah, I mean, it very much depends on the client and the brief they've given you. So one of the things that we're trying to do as a sustainability team at the moment is, is, is try and give ourselves the opportunity to take the widest possible remit we can. Um, some clients are very obsessed with, with net zero and carbon reduction, which is fine and it's obviously critical and it needs to be done. But actually, you need to think about everything at the same time. You can't do that to the detriment of... Um, you know, water use or biodiversity or anything else that's actually going to impact on the overall sustainability of, of, of the project. So it depends on the client. Sometimes we get a very narrow brief and we're only asked to look at, um, at you know, a narrow list of requirements. And that would normally start with um, baselining. So looking at where they are now, what they're doing, how it's operating yeah. um, and, you know, creating those sort of benchmarks um, and then building up their plan from there. So if we've got a client who's allowing us to look at all of the impacts that they've got and we can take a much more circular approach and um you know a much more holistic view of, of of their operations and their impacts then that's fantastic because that allows us then to start mapping everything and and working through sometimes we need to work in a narrow zone um get the client's confidence and then start introducing uh, other factors as we go along right okay and are there any innovations out there uh, that are helping to support ESG net zero? Um, so in terms of innovations, I mean, it's an interesting one because I think a lot of 
clients looking for sort of silver bullets and in a lot of respects uh, you know they, they're not really there in the format that they might want or expect so I think the most important thing to to start with is that energy or resource efficiency is always going to be the most effective thing you can do so it's you know to 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 start you know for example if we're looking at buildings we call it fabric first you know look at the actual performance of the, the shell of the building and, yeah. and and what it's doing um so all of that has to be sorted long before you start thinking about um uh pv or um uh, I don't know heat pumps or any sorts of other technologies so we we of course you know get to the stage where we're recommending everything that can be done but it's always starting with the fundamentals you know get the basics right um there is absolutely no point working to and again some clients want it some clients want to start with what we call the eco bling because it looks like they're doing more and they you know think it sends a signal to the market and whatever but it's it's mm -hmm. not really the right way of doing it so we would always advise clients to start with the basics so it might be a bit dull and boring and there might not be many things that are readily visible um yeah. but you can change that by you know for example by having energy monitors um, that staff can see and you can start talking, uh, communicating with your teams about energy reduction uh, processes and things that you're doing. So it doesn't have to be in the background. Um, the other thing that I think is really helpful at the moment is the pressure that's coming from uh, the financial side of the market. So a lot of organisations are finding that uh, stakeholders, all sorts of stakeholders are now demanding uh, transparency and reporting and there's mandatory financial reporting TCFD those sorts of things so yeah. that's good those levers are coming from outside of people like us uh, and we obviously have to then respond to what the client uh, needs to do in order to make sure that they're compliant so it, it, there's lots of different levels it works on some are finding pressure from customers or um from say the you know financial institutions uh or it might be that their major competitors are starting to move up a few gears and they feel under pressure to follow some want to be leaders in their field um and again they're they're, they're looking to make announcements about getting to net zero by 2025 or 2030 or whatever yeah. maybe um and that and that's great you know we're, we're, we're finding it's a sort of mix of all of those different things that are happening really and of course the energy crisis um unfortunately you know it, we we hate it when negative things happen but as soon as something negative happens it does focus the mind so you know if there is a drought or flood or energy crisis that that does focus the market's minds on on their vulnerability certainly does and, and and sometimes it leads to that creativity or that innovation or puts pressure on people to actually make a change um, yeah so. are there any sort of big changes you see in the workplace or from a from a consultancy business like turner and townsend over the next few years that will sort of have an impact uh, with net zero um i think there's quite a number of changes happening in the market um some some of them are again coming from government incentives so we do a lot of work with housing for example and in the social housing sector uh there's some funds called um the social housing decarbonization fund 
and uh, there are other sort of regional uh, based funds that are coming forward as well that are really helping to sort of pump prime the market uh, by sort of softening the blow, if you like, of, of the cost of some of the interventions. Um, and that alongside with other work that's being done to stimulate supply side and skills means that we're opening up the market to um, other tenures of housing like private rented and uh, owner occupied. And also it will influence uh, the commercial uh, sector as well, again, with supply chains that will be ready to um, mobilise and, and provide the services that are required. So that's really helpful. And I think the other things I mentioned uh, before, you know, like um, market pressure, you know, that that is showing that actually there is a payback to a lot of these uh, interventions because they will uh, provide a really important opportunity for um, uh, whether it's performance uh, you know, on the balance sheet or whether it's um, you know, retaining important clients, um, public uh, procurement uh, will mandate a lot of these things to be part of, of the process anyway. Um, I suppose that's that's pretty much all I've got to say, apart from the fact that I, I suppose we're, we're in a really exciting phase at the moment. And, and what myself and others feel very strongly is that we've got this fantastic opportunity to make sure that everyone gets on board. So all of the things that we're doing and talking about aren't just to do with people who've got sustainability in their job title. It's actually everyone's job to be an advocate for, for you know, the environment, for um, taking responsibility in their role or within their organisation for what they're doing and their impacts and for making sure you know they've, they've actually got something in Wales called the Future Generations Act which kind of sums it up and we kind of all need to do that we all need to be uh, protecting um, all of our um, lives and livelihoods really for future generations um, and obviously making sure that our environment is protected um so i think that's probably the best point at which to end the podcast so thanks very much again for inviting me thanks very much for your time so <laughs> i really appreciate it. that was very very interesting and uh yeah thanks again take care thank you bye, bye.